I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? Turn your Bibles over to James chapter 4. We're going to continue our study in James. But forgive my sniffliness. Um, I did a... Uh, obstacle race yesterday, and I always pick up little friends along the way in the water. So um, I have uh, a little sniffle this morning, and my voice is a little uh, different. At least it feels that way to me. So forgive me if I'm sniffing while I'm teaching. Um, we've been examining the struggle of being double-minded in James, of the uh, the tension that we have between our 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 sinful flesh and our spirit, and the um, the challenges that come with that. So in the in the first chapter, we looked at how we're supposed to ask for wisdom from God. We're supposed to look at His Word and obey it, that we need to be um, a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. It's not just an academic pursuit. That we need to be, in chapter 2, that we need to see other people the way that God sees them and how we need to not be discriminators of people based on outward appearances or, or because of social standards, but because uh, God has made us that way, that we're supposed to be empathetic. And then in chapter 3, uh, we just finished this, this, uh, these last two weeks looking at how the tongue is a reflection of our inward condition, how we, uh, we tend to say, God is good, He's awesome, and He's changing my life, but then we turn around and we, uh, we condemn someone, who are made, someone who's made in the image of God. And our, our heart reflects the, uh, the, sorry, our mouth reflects the internal condition of our heart, which is broken. And it, um, at the end of chapter 3, we looked at last week uh, the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. That worldly wisdom is based in, in sinfulness. It is, it is the, the fruit, the ground, I guess you could, you could say, that produces a, um, a conflict-driven heart, right? But godly wisdom is pure, and it, and it sows gentleness and peace, and that there is comfort and there is growth in godliness. And wisdom is one of those things that is, uh, is a central theme of the book of James. And uh, so today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at, okay, he, he's just finished these last couple of verses. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the last couple of verses of chapter 3 in order to give us some context as we move into chapter 4. So um, I'll just begin in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in, in, gentle, in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, continuing into our passage for this morning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us? But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Let me pray for us before we start looking through these verses. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the wisdom of Your Word. And we ask it, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would give us eyes to see the truth, that you would be able to, uh, that you would reveal to us the inner parts of, of our sinfulness, and that you would give us courage to face these things. We ask you, Lord, that you would just teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in the, going back to the first verse of chapter 4, James starts off by saying, what is the source of all this conflict that's inside of you? He says that these are, in, in some translations it says, these are pleasures that wage war in us. It's the conflict that we experience between our flesh and the Spirit. Galatians says this in, in chapter 5, that we should walk by the Spirit and we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. The idea is that there is a natural tension between us as we're in this sort of middle ground between our salvation and our redemption, that, that as we're living this human life, we still have to essentially deal with a broken nature while we're waiting on the fullness of time to, to manifest Christ's return. The idea is that I'm saved for eternity, but I still have to walk through these everyday challenges with a broken and sinful heart. And what happens is there's a conflict, there's a pulling back and forth. What James is telling us here is that... Um, his audience may have the, the, uh, the desire to change, but they can't seem to make any progress. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. That you, you come to the Lord and you say, Oh my goodness, I've got to confess this thing to you for the 10 millionth time. I'm so tired of dealing with this. I'm so tired of dealing with this challenge, this struggle. Will you just take this from me? And then we go back around our, we go back to our, our life only to find ourselves back again the next day or maybe a couple of minutes later and realize, Oh my goodness, I can't help I can't help this. And that frustration drives us crazy. But he's illustrating a point here. Remember, he's talking to these, these Jews who, who are these Jewish Christians who've been dispersed by persecution. And this fighting, this argument that's coming from worldly wisdom is manifesting itself in their community. And so in essence, what he's saying here is that instead of praying to praying, praying that God would give them wisdom and then courage to obey him, what's happening is they're praying for things and they're continuing to fight. So why is that? It's because they're trying to manipulate a situation and not actually have to submit themselves to God's design. So he says that the cause of their division is there are their own pleasures. In Greek, what this means is uh, hedone. It's where we get our word hedonism. It's defined as an animalistic desire for pleasure that's in all of us. Now, you might think, listen, I'm not a hedonist, right? I'm not an animal out there being crazy, right? I'm not, I'm not out of control. But God's Word tells us that every single person has their thing. The thing that you go back to, your, our, our generation would say your coping mechanism. What are, you, what are you running to to deal with the stress, to deal with the tension of your life? For some of us, it's food. For some of us, it's alcohol. For some of us, it's pornography. For some of us, it's sleep. Everybody has their thing. 
No one is free from this. He says these pleasures, these are the things that, that are driving you. His point is that their fighting is coming from their wicked hearts. Not a godly desire to, for the benefit of others, but so that they can make themselves feel better by comparing themselves to the obvious challenges of other people. The idea is that I, I'm going to cut this person off at the knees to make myself seem taller. It's wickedness. This section is an example of the double-minded person that's been described all throughout this book. This person who is who they, they pray for God to give them wisdom, and then when God does provide the wisdom, they reject it because it, it implies that I've got to make myself humble in front of God. So I reject godly wisdom because that's too terrifying. I don't want to I, I still want to retain control. And instead I'm going to go try to figure it out myself because God's way is too hard for me. If we're honest, the reason why God's the reason why God's way is so hard for us is because God gets the credit when we do it His way. But when we do it our way, we get to take the credit. That means that we can pump ourselves up. We can we can drive our own pride, and we can we can make ourselves seem important. So they don't ask for wisdom, and so it escapes them. They ask for divine help, but they don't receive any because they ask for, ask for God to give them. Help based on their own fleshly priorities. He says that in verse 3. That you ask and do not receive, but you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. He says, uh, he uses a, a series of, uh, a sequence of illustrations here to highlight how their pleasures cause conflict. He says, you lust and don't have, so you murder. It implies an insatiable desire that they are argumentative because in spite of their own best efforts, they can't grab hold of what, others do they can't they can't get other people to do what they want them to do they want to maintain control this is evidenced by someone who is always meddling in someone else's business that you have to live in a way that i want you to live so that you can fit inside my priorities this is someone who is trying to pray you know god i really pray that you would just make my relationship with my in-laws that much easier because they are x y and z or my siblings or my my friends or whatever the case may be we pray for things so that we can essentially manipulate other people when i was a kid my uh my little brother steven we were always getting into trouble together um he's he was 18 months younger than i was and so whenever we would uh, be doing something we knew we shouldn't be doing right i would try to play the mom card to manipulate him to, to do what I wanted him to do. And I would always say, you know, I'm going to go tell mom. You know, we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. And mom, like mom's going to be the mediator when we're both being disobedient, right? And I would say, I'm going to go tell mom. And his, he was so smart and made me want to punch him in the face most of the time. But what he would do is he would say, dude, you're doing this with me. Like you go tell mom, like we're both in trouble. Like you're doing this too. Right, so that that's an illustration of what what happens. We we get sideways with people, and we say, "Hey, God, will you help me with so and so?" And we don't realize that we're in the wrong. We're in the wrong too. We're in the mess of it too. Right? So he says, "You lust and don't have, so you murder." Jesus says, "Jesus said that if you if you hate another person in your heart, you're guilty of murder." Right? That's what he's talking about here. He says that they're envious and can't obtain, so they fight and they quarrel. It implies that. They're argumentative, they are argumentative in spite of their, um, their desire to try to move people or to move situations. So they, so they cause issues, right? Uh, he says that you don't have because you don't ask. 
This implies that they believe God was simply an add-on to their lives. The idea that, okay, I'm going to work this out, and when things finally get God-sized, then I'll ask Him for help. So I'm, again, I'm the one who's taking the mantle. I'm the one who's smart. I'm the one who can figure this out. I don't want to go to God because He's got bigger things on His, on his docket that He's dealing with. But what that denies is that God is a good Father who gives good things to His children. He's in the mess. He always has been in the mess. He's been in the action from the beginning. And so for us, whenever we say, God, this, this situation is too small for you, what we're saying actually is not that God is too small. It's that we are big enough to handle it ourselves. And that, quite frankly, is just not the way that it works. Because God does God stuff and we do human stuff. Our job is to be obedient. So we ask and we don't get. Have you ever, have you ever prayed for something? and God doesn't answer you? Or He's telling you no, but you refuse to accept it? One of the misnomers about prayer is that we're informing God of our needs. That's actually not the primary reason that we pray, believe it or not. We don't come to God and say, hey God, can you do these things for me like He's some sort of a genie in a bottle. Prayer is a tool that God uses to mold our priorities to His. So in essence, what happens is whenever I come to God's, to, to, whenever I come to Him and I say, Lord, here's a situation, we have to first acknowledge that we come to that situation in ignorance, that we don't know what the outcome will be. Now, when we genuinely pour out our hearts to Him and we say, God, this is what we, this is how we feel about this situation, will you help us? Will you please help us? And if this isn't the direction that you want us to go, Give us courage to face it because we don't know what's going to happen. I can think of multiple examples that have happened in the last several years. One of them is when Daniel was in the hospital. I remember this because, because Daniel Schlegel was, was on death's doorstep. And I remember, Lindsay, we were, we were going to bed one night and she said, we have to pray for Daniel. And so we, we, we sat there on our bed, both of us weeping our eyes out. Lord Jesus, please please help Daniel. And it must have been the perfect time because the next day, it wasn't our prayers. I tend to think God's waiting for me to shift my focus and to see things the way that he sees them before he shows up because I am so proud that I hold out into the last minute. And then finally, when I say, okay, take my human perspective away and let me see this as you see that. Then he goes, okay, now I can move. I don't believe that it was our prayers that saved Daniel that day. But I do believe that what God was doing was he was teaching us to see things the way that he sees them. So when we pray for things and God says no, it's not because he's a tyrant. It's because we are, we are praying in ignorance. And prayer is the tool that God uses to change our perspective, to see things correctly. What James is telling us here is that you're praying for things based on your own sinful pleasures. You're essentially saying, hey, Lord, will you come bless this thing that I know is going to hurt me? It's dangerous. That's the problem with pleasures. But things get more serious. Look at verse 4. Because it leads to a problem with rebellion. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as God's enemy. In other words, these are the characteristics, these are not the characteristics of a godly person, but one who is unfaithful. Throughout the Bible, 
The relationship between God and his people is illustrated in marriage between a husband and a wife. That's why he says, you adulteresses. <laughs> in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the, that the role that we play as the church is as Jesus' bride. Just like if you go through and you want to see a real-life example of what our relationship is like with God, read the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament who God commanded him to marry a prostitute. And he would have seasons of faithfulness with her, and then she would leave him, and she would prostitute herself. And then they would reconcile, and then she would leave, and she would prostitute herself. And God gave him that calling on purpose so that he could experience and illustrate what our relationship is like with God. Now, you generally don't set out and say, you know what, hey, I'm, I'm going to cheat on God today. But inevitably, we are drawn away by our own sinfulness, <coughs> and it leads to uh, adultery, spiritual adultery. The Greek word for adulteresses is moikalis. It's a term that's used to describe someone who has turned their devotion away from God and toward a false god or an idol. The picture here that, that James is using is um, accusing the church, accusing us uh, of not taking the promises of God's intervention in our lives uh, honestly. It's the diminished equivalent of a person who takes the provision of their spouse and tries to use it as a resource for their to pay for their affair. I mean, imagine this. Okay, imagine if 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 I was to come to Lindsay, and I said, you know, or or if I was, if I was talking to you about my my marriage to her, you know what? I love my wife. I just try to let try not to let my affairs get too out of control. I'm sorry. Wait, what? You know, yeah, I mean, we're married. We're we're in a committed relationship with each other. But you know, I just try to limit the amount of people that I sleep with. You know, because I respect her. He says, not absurd, right? If we're honest, we have the same attitude towards God. Oh, you know what? I have devotion towards, toward, towards the Lord Jesus, the maker of the universe, who loves me, who's paid the ultimate price for me. You know, and as a result, you know, he understands that I've got needs, right? Because he, you know, Jesus isn't a square, right? I should be able to have a good time. It should be fine. Okay, so imagine the same thing. Let's go back to the analogy. So I come to Lindsay and I say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take one of my girls out on a date. Can I have some money to pay for it? How offensive, right? How offensive that I would come to my bride who I've, who I have made, I've entered into a covenant relationship with and I ask her to pay for my affair. And yet we come to Jesus and we say, hey, Lord, I want X, Y, Z. Will you help me pay for it? Hey, God, I know that this, this job or this friendship or this physical item that I want to buy or this lifestyle or this thing, I really, really, really want this. Will you help me pay for it? Would a loving spouse say yes? No, of course not. Because it undermines our relationship. And so what do we do? We come to Christ and we say, Lord Jesus, I really, 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 really want this thing. Okay, but in our ignorance, we're praying for something, and he says no. Well, 
usually the track record of my life is that I act like a two-year-old. I stomp my feet and I say, God is so mean because he's not letting me have the thing that I want. But the truth is, I'm asking, based on my own pleasures, to consume them on my own lusts and desires. I am being adulterous. He says, this doesn't win favor with God, but it puts the person squarely against him and invites his resistance. He says, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. In other words, God will not allow anything to be placed above him in our devotion. And as much as we try to justify it, there's no fellowship between light and darkness, right? The picture, Another picture that we could use here is that... Um, it's like we are we are we are in the we are in a in a battle we're in a we're in a war right now between good and evil. And when we're saved by Christ, we put on the new clothing of righteousness. We put on the uniform of righteousness. We bear His name. But how how offensive would it be for us to take off our uniform of righteousness and put on the uniform of the enemy and then begin to fight against God's people and God's movement in the kingdom of God? He says. This is wickedness. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Let's take that first part. The friendship with the world is hostility towards God. God will not be will not allow anything to be placed above him. It says that he's jealous for us. Now, let me explain that. It doesn't mean that God is jealous because he's insecure. That is not what that means. In human terms, that's typically what happens, right? I'm insecure, so I'm jealous, so I'm trying to force my spouse to do something that, that to manipulate them to do what I want. But when it says that God is jealous for us, it means that he will not allow our relationship to suffer. He will go out of his way to try to make it work, to try to, try to bond us together. This jealousy is not rooted in insecurity, but rather in the truth of how destructive our sin is. He says that we are a, if we're a friend of the world, we're God's enemy. To be a friend of the world means to be one who finds his pleasure in a thing. You see, when we find pleasure in something that is contrary to our nature as God's children, it destroys, it corrupts our relationship with him. It also destroys and corrupts our relationship with each other. I don't know if you have reached this point in your marriage yet or not, when you've realized that your spouse is a sinner. Maybe you realize, you know what, this, this, this hunk of man that I married, that I thought was, you know, hung the moon. Wow, he's a dirt bag. <laughs> or this sweet girl that I married, man, gosh, she's beautiful. She's a little demon sometimes. Second guessing whether or not you should fall asleep if they got that pillow next to you. You're going to wake up with a face full of pillow, right? You might not realize it, but you're sinful, and so is your spouse. Turns out, one of the things that I've realized throughout the years is that anytime that there's conflict between me and my wife, it's because one of us are living in our pleasures. And we have declared war against God, and what that means is that it's caused tension in our marriage. And the, the best way for us to have reconciliation and peace is for both of us to humble ourselves and make peace with our Creator. Because the fruit of peace is sown by those who seek peace. But the fruit of the world, the fruit of our fleshly wisdom, is conflict. So he says that when we find our pleasure and our purpose in worldly things, we make ourselves an enemy of God. This means 
uh, to be actively hostile, hating, or opposing. In other words, it may seem harmless to enjoy a little worldliness here and there, but in God's eyes, all of it is adultery. This leads to our last point here, these last two verses, in verses 5 and 6. The promise of resistance. Look at this. He says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, think about this. I'm sorry, I missed verse 5. Verse 5 says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This verse, verse 6, rings in my ears daily. When I was a young man, um, I memorized a lot of the book of James. Um, and this, this one has, has this verse more than any other verse in the Bible probably, besides maybe Proverbs 4.23, um, it reminds me when I get out of bounds what I need to do. Because, you see, sin is not about the things that we do. Sin is about who's in control of our life. Because the things that we do that we consider sin, they're just the byproduct of a rebellious heart. Right? I rebel against God, I take control, and therefore I do things as a result. I make people feel small in my mind to make myself feel big, to justify my, my own rebellion. I, um, I hurt people. I hurt myself. I make, I make decisions that are destructive, and I'm lazy, and, I'm, and I, I, cause, tra- I, I cause, cause trauma with the people that I care about. So the particular actions aren't really the issue. The issue is a rebellious heart. The word for jealous in the Old Testament, uh, it means, it literally means, like in Exodus 34, that God does not bear any rival when he's jealous for us. We've been paid, paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so to be a friend of the world is to deny him what he's entitled to and what he's paid for. It's offensive to God because we choose to allow ourselves to betray him. When it says that, we, that he's jealous for us, the, the, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, it means that God literally puts his spirit in us when we become saved so that we can know that he is present with us. Jesus said that when he went away, he was going to send a teacher. The teacher was going to train us in all things that were true. He's going to train us in how to live and how to live godly and how to have a relationship. It was going to be our connection, our radio to heaven. That's what the Holy Spirit is. So when we feel conflict about the way that we're living, Understand, this isn't God getting coming down on you to make you feel small. This is God saying, hey, I love you. This is bad for you. Don't do this. Hebrews 12 tells us that God lovingly corrects his children. Just like we had human fathers who, who corrected us for our benefit, in, in granted, very incomplete and inconsistent and broken ways, our good father doesn't do that. Our good heavenly father, he corrects those that he loves. And so when God, when he, when he yearns jealously for us, the spirit that's been put in us, what happens is he is calling us back to himself. So there's two important things here. One is that the presence of the Holy Spirit leads to a miserable life to a believer who's living in sin. So when we're praying for things to consume them on our own lusts, we're not going to find any satisfaction in that. The second thing is that God actively works against his children who are trying to befriend the world. When it says that he opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, that word opposed is a military term. It means to draw battle lines against the enemy. Consider this. If we pray for things 
that are, that are sinful, that are going to be self-destructive to us, God will literally send the angels of heaven, all the forces of heaven to stop us. Have you ever prayed for something and it doesn't ever seem to work out? You pray for it, you work really hard, it doesn't work. You pray for it, work really hard another way, it doesn't work. Every single time you find an open door, it slams shut in your face. Why would that be? Could it be that God opposes you because you're being proud? That you're coming to him with an ignorant prayer request saying, God, fit in this box right here and do this thing specifically. And if you don't, I'm going to say that you're unjust. Oh, I'm going to cloak it in God language. I'm going to lay out a fleece. I'm going to say, oh God, if you'll just do this thing for me, then I'll know that you're, that, that you're, that you're with me. We're going to get to here in a few weeks where he says, you boast in your own ignorance. All such boasting is demonic. The idea is that God is the one who's in control and we're not, right? So he says to, that God oppresses the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The proud is someone who's defined as someone who shows self, who show self above others, overtopping, conspicuous above others, preeminent with an inflated estimate of one's means or merits. Man. The picture here is to place oneself next to God as his equal and to challenge his throne. This sounds familiar because this is the same rebellion as Lucifer, who said, I no longer want to be subservient to this God. I want to be God myself. And essentially what happens is we do that. So we pray that God would, number one, that he would finance our affair. But secondly, we try to overthrow the king. So in this, we learn that not only will God not give us tools for our rebellion, but also we learn that he's going to actively work against us to frustrate our sinful cause. But here's the kicker. The thing that I think is the most significant here is that while we challenge God for his throne, while our sinfulness is at war with our spirit inside of us, notice how he finishes this section. But he gives grace to the humble. You see, we will declare war against God throughout our life. But his immediate response is always grace. He doesn't validate our sinfulness. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, and just dismiss the offense. He deals with the offense. He is just, but he's equally merciful. He equally dispenses grace. He is eager for reconciliation because he understands who we are and what we deal with. If you go back and you read the testimony of Jesus' life, the thing that's astounding to me, if you go and you read specifically like Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about why Jesus came. On purpose, God chose to walk a human life, to live a human life with all of the things that we deal with, that he was tempted in every way that we're tempted yet without sin. He did that for the sole purpose of reconciling between you and him. So when you deal with these struggles, when you deal with the hardship of praying for things that you know are sinful, but God has to continually remind you to see things as he sees them, know that Jesus walked the earth so that he could be in that conversation and speak with credibility. So when you bring your issues to God, don't think God doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand me. I'm coming to him, giving him my list of wants, right? 
God knows himself what it means to walk in desperation for righteousness. God knows himself the struggle that you face. And so when you come to him and you, you have the option, do I bring him my pre-described list of things that I think that I need? Or do I come to him with an open and repentant heart and say, God, here's my situation and I don't know what to think about it. Will you frame my vision around your will for my life? Because if we see God as just simply someone who accomplishes tasks, we put him in a box. But if we see him as a good father who's in relationship with us, who is teaching us how to process the issues of our life, there is nothing that we face that is beyond his hand. The purpose of prayer is not for God to give us stuff. The purpose of prayer is to teach us how to see the world. We have a good father who's able to teach us all these things. So that leads us to a question for the car. Number one, what are you asking God for? What, what is the latest thing that occupies the majority of your thoughts? What are you so worried about right now? What are you asking him for? And here's, here's a question that you might ask to determine whether or not it's a godly prayer request. If he answered your prayer today, would it glorify you or would it glorify God? If God answered your prayer today that you have been so earnestly asking him for wisdom for, would it glorify you and it elevate you and show, show you as the smartest, the, the best looking, the most accomplished? Or, as James says in the first chapter, would you be able to glory in your low degree? Would you be able to say, man, this was an impossible situation, and yet God showed up because he is God and I'm not. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried.